You're listening to the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome podcast. Welcome to episode 34 of the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. As always, I'm hyped to be here for this pod and to dig in and try to figure out ways to reinvent, renew, resurrect, and improve week to week, day to day, and even hour to hour. And obviously, the best way to do this is to improve your mindset so you can make better decisions and choices and consequently take massive, consistent action. Personally, I am still a work in progress, but I hope a lot better right now than I was when I started this journey months ago and will still be much better before it's done. Another way that I'm looking to stimulate improvement is by reading as much as possible and meeting with and talking to as many individuals as I can who are traveling similar journeys or have experiences to share with us that will enhance our journeys. And today's guest, Leif Babin, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I've been looking forward to this conversation for months, and it smashed all of my expectations. Leif is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He's also the co-author of a couple of New York Times bestsellers, Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win, and the Dichotomy of Leadership, Balancing the Challenges of Extreme Ownership to Lead and Win. He also co-founded the leadership-focused company Echelon Front with the legendary Jocko Willink. I could not wait to have this conversation, and I cannot wait to get it to you. It's episode 34 of the Reinvention Project with retired Navy SEAL Leif Babin, and it's coming at you right now. Now, Leif, as somebody who devours your content, written and otherwise, I want to say, first of all, how pumped I am to have this opportunity to meet you and speak with you, and thank you so much for making time for this. Thank you very much for your service to this country as well. First of all, how are you and yours, Leif? I'm doing great, Jim. It's great to be on with you today. And uh, it was an honor to serve. I appreciate you saying saying thanks there. But uh, great to be on with you. I've followed you for a long time, and I appreciate all that you do. I appreciate you saying that. Now, listen, obviously, I want to talk to you about what you've learned on the battlefield and how these lessons translate to business and the civilian world. Obviously, we'll get to that shortly, but I do want to make sure that my listeners know exactly who we are engaging with. So if you can take a little bit of time and talk about your personal journey, I make no bones about this, Leif. Not only do I have immense appreciation for all of our service people, I do have an immense respect and even a fascination of sorts for the special forces and the SEAL team members. When did you first get it in your head that you want to be a member of the teams, and what drew you to that? As as, as long as I can remember wanting to be anything, Jim, I, I wanted to be some kind of a commando, some kind of a combat leader. And, and from the time I was playing with my G.I. Joe figures out in the sandbox in uh, deep East Texas where I grew up, uh, so I went to the Naval Academy and pursued the dream of being in the SEAL team. I, I, I read books by Dick Marcinko and started to learn a little bit about the SEAL program. So I went to the Naval Academy and pursued that dream. I didn't get selected uh, for, for the SEAL program out of Navy after four long, hard years there. And uh, I, I went and served on a, a couple different service ships. It was a what ended up being a tremendous leadership experience for me. And then I got I got I finally got picked up for the SEAL program right about the time that 9-11 happened. And so as I went through SEAL training, we call it basic underwater demolition SEAL training or BUDS. Uh, as I went through that program, I, I, I was just, just happy for the chance to be there. And I knew you know, that this was real, we were at war. Uh, we've been attacked, thousands of innocent Americans were dead. And so I knew I was gonna go right to a SEAL platoon and then uh, head, head overseas to fight our nation's enemies. So uh, end up serving nine years total in the SEAL teams, three combat deployments to Iraq, and I learned a lot of tough lessons on the battlefield, particularly for my deployment in 2006 with Jocko, 
uh, when Jocko Willink was my task unit commander in task unit bruiser. And we, we were in some very violent, difficult combat operations for six straight months. And I brought back some really humbling lessons learned, lessons like humility, ownership, and teamwork, and lessons like leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. Uh, and that's not just the senior person in charge I'm talking about, but every level of the team, leaders that step up and lead, uh, and that's crucial to, to victory. And so I took over a training program to teach the next generation of SEALs the lessons that I learned on the battlefield. And uh, when Jock and I left the, the uh, active duty, then we launched this company, Echelon Front, to teach those same lessons to leaders uh, everywhere. All right, so like there is so much good stuff to unpack in that, and I'm going to do that. I do. You mentioned that you read some of those books from Dick Marcinko. I can remember those books too. I actually used to read those books myself. That did not lead me to pursue anything like that, but I can remember those books. Now you mentioned that you did attend the Naval Academy, presumably because you want to be a SEAL, but initially you were not selected to go to the teams. Why not? What happened? That's a great question. Uh, it, it was the first lesson that I really had in this concept that we now call extreme ownership. I, I didn't get selected because there were, you know, probably 200 individuals in, in my class at the Naval Academy that wanted to be in the SEAL program. We have a, a pretty tough physical screening process. Out of that, we probably had 70 or 80 people graduate. And out of those, they only took 15. We had we had a 16 bills at the time. We had a prior enlisted SEAL in my class. So, uh, you know, out of the, out of those 80, we probably had 40 or 50 guys who would have done very well in the SEAL program, could have gone and uh, and I, I just wasn't one of the 15 that were selected. So that was, uh, my grades weren't good. I, I didn't study hard enough. I, I didn't have the discipline to actually buckle down and make, make good grades. Uh, and, uh, and, and I, I didn't put in the time and effort to, to score uh, at the ultra high level that I needed to, to compete with, you know, some of the division one athletes that, that I was up against that were swimmers and water polo players and runners uh, to, to score enough on the test. And so, uh, and I also didn't didn't take the time to actually really build some relationships with the people who uh, who were making the selection on who was going to the SEAL program. So all of those things, I failed on those things. I had to really look at myself and instead of making excuses, instead of casting blame, instead of pointing fingers, I had to really uh, take ownership of that uh, of that issue and do better and, and train harder and work harder uh, and build better relationships. And, uh, and so I knew when I went out in the service fleet, I had to be the best uh, officer, the best service warfare officer I could be uh, in order to to get the kind of recommendations I would need to, to go and get selected for the SEAL program. So the fact of the matter is, it was your first major lesson in extreme ownership. You weren't quite squared away at that point. But if I want to make the point that not only did you learn those lessons, but the fact of the matter is, it set you off for another three years, right? You had to literally will, grind, work, and fight your way back. And it took three years to get another shot, right? It did. It was about three and a half years from my graduation. And in fact, it was, I put in a package about, about two years after I graduated from the Naval Academy, got commissioned as an officer. So you have to qualify as, as in your warfare qualification. So as a service warfare officer on a ship, I had to, I had to achieve that qualification. The very first time I did that, I put together the package. I met all the minimum requirements and I didn't get selected. So not only did I not get selected out of the Naval Academy, I didn't get selected on my first, uh, uh, lateral transfer package, we call it as well. So it was my third opportunity that I finally got selected in. And I went all out. I went way beyond the minimums uh, that were required. And I actually went and, and scheduled a meeting with the senior officer who was the, the head of the board uh, uh, that was selecting uh, who was going. And, and he told me, I walked in, there's a, a lieutenant junior grade, very young officer. I scheduled a meeting with him. I went in there and talked to him about what it would take to be in the SEAL program. 
And he told me right away, he's like, no one does this. No one comes in. And uh, it's what, you know, what we call default aggressive to go in there and actually just schedule a meeting, figure out what it was going to take to get, uh, to get selected, uh, you know, get myself known and start to build some relationships with people uh, so that I could get selected. And, and he, he encouraged me, hey, put in a package. I think you're going to do well. We want your kind of folks uh, in, in the SEAL program. Listen, today, small business owners are busier than they've ever been. Time spent searching for and interviewing candidates can take time away from managing and growing that business. This is why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get to the candidates worth interviewing faster, and it is free. I don't know where I would be without LinkedIn Jobs. I absolutely love the product. Try for yourself. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. That is an enormous number. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience that you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. Then, use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you do want to interview and hire. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. Hey, did you know that every single week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Rome. Again, linkedin.com slash R-O-M-E to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. All right, so Leigh, for instance... I want to keep talking about your story, but I want to skip ahead because you just mentioned something called default aggressive. It's a phrase that comes up in the book, Extreme Ownership. It's a phrase that Jocko has mentioned many times in his other books. What does it mean to be default aggressive? That's a great question, Jim. And, you know, it's some people think that when we say default aggressive, that Jocko and I are talking about being aggressive toward people. They, they look at someone like Jocko, who's this big, tough, angry looking guy. and think that he's yelling and screaming to people. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're not talking about being aggressive toward people. We're talking about being aggressive toward accomplishing the goal, overcoming obstacles, solving problems, making things happen. So, you know, good leadership, no matter what you might see in the movies or know what, what misconceptions some people might have about military leadership, good leaders don't yell and scream at people. In fact, in all the years that I've worked with Jocko Willink, he's never yelled at me even one time. I can't even think of a single time that he's yelled at me. I'm sure I've given him a lot of opportunities to want to yell and <laughs> scream at me, but he hasn't done that because that's not what good leaders do. So default aggressive means, you know, the Marines describe this as a bias for action. And the, that bias for action is, is instead of waiting for things to come to you, waiting for the good deals to happen, waiting for problems to get solved, you're going to actually go make those things happen. You're going to, you're going to take action. You're going to be proactive rather than reactive. And, and so that, that's something that, you know, even if it's, we, t we tell uh, leaders, no matter what level they are in the organization, even if it's above your pay grade uh, to, to solve a problem, the best thing you can do is to make a recommendation up the chain of command. And that's what we really mean by default aggressive is, is making things happen. Problems are not going to solve themselves. If you ignore problems, those problems are generally going to get worse. So you have to actually go get those problems solved uh, and, and, or it's not going to happen. I also love that uh, line, bias for action, a bias for action. Now, Leif, if you can indulge us, I think there are still some people listening right now that are not necessarily familiar with the process. What do you have to do to become a Navy SEAL? For instance, what is BUDS and what's it like to go through? It's an outstanding training program. I, I, I love 
loved it. I mean, it was, it's tough. There's no question. It's a, it's, it's an incredible physically challenging program. I mean, there's, there's a lot of great programs out there in, in the military, uh, you know, from Marine Corps uh, basic training to Ranger school, to the, the uh, army special forces qualification course. I think one thing that sets buds apart uh, in, in SEAL training uh, it sets us apart from from other programs is the water factor. You, you get put in the cold water all the time. Uh, it, it's it's something that everybody is uncomfortable with, and they find your Achilles heel. I don't care if you're a world class athlete; uh, they're, they're going to find your Achilles heel. There's going to be something that's challenging that's very hard for you. And we have about a seventy to eighty percent attrition rate through the about a it's about a seven month program that you're going through with buds. So you know, most of the people end up quitting in. Uh, in, in a few weeks into first phase, it's broken up into three phases. Most, of, most people end up quitting in, in the, the, the part of first phase that we call hell week, which is five continuous 24 hour days of pretty much nonstop physical activity and very little sleep. And it's, it's something that, that, that really materialized in World War II when there was a tremendous demand signal for underwater demolition teams, naval combat demolition units. A guy named Draper Kaufman actually created this program, and uh, and they were trying to just compress six weeks of training down into a, a single week to try to mimic what these uh, what these guys were going to see when they hit the beaches of Normandy or Okinawa or Iwo Jima, uh, and the kind of chaos and mayhem they were going to experience. And so they've kept that uh, just with you know blank fire machine guns and 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 massive uh, uh, physical uh, tests constantly and almost no sleep throughout the course of those five days. That's where we end up losing most folks. Uh, but we also have some challenging things in in dive phase as well. We have to close your or you have, you have to hold your breath underwater as your hoses get ties and knots. It's called pool comp. Uh, and then and then when you get into the third phase where they actually start to teach you a, a few of the of the skills that you might need like land navigation and and, and some of the weapons uh, training and things like that that we uh, we utilize. Uh, but it, it's a great program. It, it's an awesome program and it's it's one that uh, that uh, it, it works. You know, it weeds out the people that don't have. Uh, what it takes to be successful on the battlefield as SEALs. All right, so before we talk about extreme ownership, when you mentioned Hell Week and the fact that most guys get weirded out right there, how did you approach it, and what were your personal keys and strategies for getting through it and succeeding? Well, going into Hell Week, I think there's, you know, it's all about will. I mean, Jocko and I talk about this a lot. We don't actually talk that much about buds because when, when you compare the, the difficulties of SEAL training, versus actual combat. I was way more physically tired, way more uh, challenged, way more mostly overwhelmed, uh, but physically tired, sleep deprived, et cetera, in combat situations than I was in BUDS. So, so BUDS is really just training you for that so that you're, you're ready for the types of challenges that you would, you would face in combat. But it's all about mindset. It, it's all about your, the will. And if you've got the, uh, some, some guys end up quitting the program, you know, they think it was all about, well, if I'd have done more push-ups or sit-ups or if I'd have train for the cold water more, if I had ran more or swam more. Uh, and look, you got to have discipline. Certainly you have to be physically prepared. You have to be able to perform an extreme high level of athleticism. But more than anything, you have to just look in the mirror and decide that's what you want to do. And if you decide that's what you want to do and you're not going to, you're, you're going to overcome any challenges put in your way, uh, then, then you're going you're gonna to be successful. And I, I, there's two types of people that don't make it through Hell Week. Right off the bat, you, you can pick them out. You know, the first type is the kind of big, tough guy, tough talking chest beating bravado type that says it's, it's only five days how hard can it be and you know that guy's gonna last you know he's gonna last 30 minutes in a hell week max um because he's, he's not prepared for the challenge of just how difficult it's going to be there's also people that are just like wow i don't know if i can make this it's going to be so difficult uh, and you know those people aren't going to make it either because they have no confidence in themselves or they're not they've already kind of mentally quit before it even begins and the kind of people that that make it through 
through through Hell Week and make it through buds and then and then do well in combat situations are the kind of people that recognize, wow, this is going to be a challenge. This is going to be a kick in the nuts. It's going to be hard. But uh, you know what? I'm up for the challenge. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to overcome any challenge that's in front of me in order to, to go be in the SEAL teams and serve in combat. And that that humor that, that comes out of that when it, things get really rough and people are laughing and joking about how tough it is, that's something that, that we did on combat operations. I saw that in, 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 in SEAL teammates all the time as bullets were flying around, coming in inches over our head or explosions are going off. And you got guys that are literally laughing about how crazy it is and how tough it is. Uh, or, or some crazy patrol where you have to carry a, you know, 120 pound rucksack for, you know, miles and miles through muddy fields, trying to foot patrol, you know, down some, uh, into an area where you couldn't drive because the roads were just simply too dangerous. You're going to get blown up with IDs. Wow. I mean, that's, you talk about a different mindset. Listen, I understand how stressful daily life can be, but you don't want to let that stress weigh on your body. So whether you're an elite athlete or somebody like me, just trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can help. I love this product so much. Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device which releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combo of depth, speed, and power, and it is as quiet as an electric toothbrush. Plus, the Gen 4 Theragun doesn't just feel good, it gets right to the source of the pain by releasing tension. And it does so by using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. So whether you want to treat your muscle tension from working out, or an injury, or just the stresses of everyday life, there is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. And believe me, it's not just me saying it. Theragun is trusted by 250 professional sports teams. Teams like Real Madrid, also elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, and hundreds of thousands of customers just like me and you. So try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. Again, an amazing product. Go to therabody.com slash reinvention right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's therabody.com slash reinvention, therabody.com slash reinvention. I mean, I hear what you're saying, right? It's not always about the biggest, the strongest, or the most athletic. Like, I've known a number of SEALs, and you would look at guys, and they don't necessarily seem like that, but you can look them up and down and say, man, I'm not fucking with that guy. I don't want any part of that guy. I know better. I know better. So it's about will. It's about mindset. Did you, when you were preparing for it, and I do want to get to the book in a minute, were you working? Was there a process for developing that will and that mindset? Or were you built for it already? Were you hardwired for it? Where did your will and mindset come from? That's a very interesting question, Jim. I, I think that's, I, I think there's some element that uh, of people who, there, there's a mindset that certain people are going to have, right? That they're willing, they're, they're willing to push themselves hard. But it's certainly something that, so, so people have some innate ability, I think, uh, to, to focus on something uh, to just, I mean, I, I have three young kids at home. They are strong wills. And, <laughs> and that, that's a, that is a challenge for me as a father in, in a, in a huge way. And I know they, they get that for me. So there's some, there's some element of, of that in your DNA, I think. Uh, and I think that's common with most of the guys I serve with in the SEAL teams and many others I serve in the military, uh, just as it is at a high level, you know, uh, high level athletes in, in professional sports as well. But, but I think there's also an element of that that has to be learned and trained and developed over time. And frankly, you know, one of the things that, that I'm so thankful for, as heartbreaking as it was for me, you know, after going to spend four years at the academy and wanting to, you know, my lifelong dream to be in the SEAL teams, to not, to not be selected there, 
I'm so thankful that it gave me the mindset and, and perspective that when I finally got selected to go after three years, I got picked up the very last time, the third package that I put in, uh, the very last time that I would have been able to go, I finally got selected. So when things got really tough for me and Buds, I, I was I was just so thankful to be there. I, I was I was able to enjoy every moment of that. And I, I'm not sure I could have done that as, as a as an 18 or 19 year old without that that previous perspective. I was the old man going through that training at 26 years old. So I mean, guys go through it, and you know, Jocko went through that training when he was 18. Uh, and I had plenty of guys in my class that were super young like that. So, uh, so plenty of people do it, but that perspective, I think is, is very valuable. I know it was something that served me well, uh, but I, I do think, it, uh, you know, that disciplined mindset of uh, a focus and perspective is something that can be trained is something that can be learned and is something that, that can and has to be developed over time. All right. So I so appreciate you sharing that part of your journey. So you and Jocko have written a brilliant book called extreme ownership, how us Navy seals lead and win. It really is an amazing book on leadership. It's a New York times bestseller. I mean, right off the top, Leif, how, what exactly is extreme ownership? How would you define that? What extreme ownership means is that there are no excuses. There is no one else to blame. You have to own everything in your world and not just what you're responsible for, but every single thing that impacts your mission. And when Jocko and I were serving together, tasking a bruiser in the battle of Vermont in 2006, we, we didn't, we didn't use this term extreme ownership, but we, we, the mindset was absolutely there because we saw it in the most successful SEALs. We saw it in the most successful Army and Marine Corps units that we served with. We saw it in, in, in the most successful units everywhere. They, they had this mindset of extreme ownership. Instead of casting blame, instead of making excuses, instead of pointing fingers or even denying that the problems were as bad as they were, uh, the best units, they, they had leaders that stepped up and took ownership of problems and not just and they didn't just say, hey, that was my, my bad when something went, went wrong. They actually said, here, this is my fault that this happened, and here's what I'm going to do to fix this going forward. And then they implemented a solution to make sure that that problem didn't happen again. And, you know, I, I think one way that maybe could, could, uh, could help, help your listeners under, understand what this concept means is, you know, every, everybody has this idea in the SEAL teams of, like, there's amazing units, uh, and, and everybody's incredible, everybody's awesome. And of course, it's actually not true. We have an incredible, incredibly talented people, incredibly capable people in the SEAL teams, but there's good units and there's bad units. And the function of what, what makes those units good or bad is, is, is typically not about their, it's not about their talent or about their skill or about their experience level. It's about whether or not they can actually admit when they make mistakes, take ownership of those problems and get those problems solved. And, you know, Task Unit Bruiser, we, we had a tremendously high performing SEAL Task Unit under Jocko's leadership. And the reason it wasn't talent, it wasn't experience, because I've been in previous SEAL units that had incredibly talented people, incredibly highly experienced people, uh, as well as about the same number of new guys that were fresh out of training. What made Task Unit Bruiser different was our mindset and our attitude. And when we screwed things up, when we made mistakes in training, we took ownership of those mistakes. We accepted the constructive criticism that the SEAL instructors that were putting us through, through a workup cycle, training us and preparing us to go, go overseas. When they gave us some, some guidance and told us that we should tighten uh, up our tactics or work on a particular procedure, we said, thank you. We took ownership of that. We implemented solutions going forward. And it wasn't that we, we never made mistakes. We made mistakes all the time. In fact, the entire book, Extreme Ownership, is all about the mistakes that we made and what we learned from it. Uh, but but as, as we learn from those mistakes, we can implement solutions to make sure those mistakes didn't happen again. And when we see teams in the business world, now with 10 years of doing this national front, all across the business world, first responders, military units, I mean, a charity organization we work with, 
we see the same mindset that leads to successful teams. They're taking ownership of problems. They're implementing solutions. They're fixing those problems going forward so that, uh, th that they're able to not repeat the same mistakes and they get better and better and better as a result. And those teams are running circles around everybody else. All right, so let me ask you this. This is a word that Jocko uses quite a bit, binary. Things are binary. So for instance, when you were on the battlefield and even now when you're in the business world working with Echelon Front, are there, I mean, are there bad teams and bad units, or are there only bad leaders? Well, that is our uh, that is our chapter two of, of extreme ownership. No bad teams, only bad leaders, and that is that is something that Jocko had learned uh, from a, a retired army officer uh, named Colonel David Hackworth, who wrote a book called About Face. And he wrote in there he learned from his World War II mentors that there were no bad units, only bad officers. And we took that and expanded it to there's no bad teams, only bad leaders. And this is, it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, and, and I saw that over and over again in training. Uh, I saw it in, in, in combat when, when a leader would get replaced or when a team was struggling or not performing well, oftentimes you'd replace the leader or put a, a, a new individual in, in a position of leadership in that organization. They bring in a new perspective. They start taking ownership of problems. And all of a sudden that team's performance gets completely turned around. And, and of course, in chapter two of Extreme Ownership, I wrote about that in detail, how uh, a, a, a boat crew of seven SEAL candidates that were going through BUDS, as, as I came back from Ramadi, I took over as a leadership instructor, and I got a chance to go out and, and, and be an instructor going through that training. And I watched this these two teams uh, going through training. And one boat crew, boat crew one was winning all the, uh, uh, boat crew two was winning all the operations. Boat crew six was failing uh, all, all of these, these, uh, these races, boat crew races were, was what they were being tasked with. And so one boat crew of seven uh, guy, the seven man team was the best in the class and the other boat crew was the worst in the class. Uh, and, and we swapped out the leaders and all of a sudden boat crew six, which had been the worst in the class becomes now the best in the class and they start beating all the other boat crews. And it was just another example of no bad teams, only bad leaders. I, I think it was a, it's one that I've seen over and over and over again uh, as, as leaders got replaced or a struggling team would, would continue to, to fail to perform. And then a, a new leader comes in there, takes over that team and turns the entire direction of the team around. I, I actually love that anecdote. Now, Leif, I know for a fact, and I, I'm not talking to anybody right now, but I know there's a, quote, leader listening who's pushing back on this because I know you probably hear this yourself. So what do you say when somebody says, now, wait a minute, it's not my fault. I wasn't there. I didn't make that decision. I didn't take that action. How can this be my fault? Why do I have to own that? I know that comes back. I know you hear that. So what do you tell those people? It's, it's the hardest thing in the world uh, to, to take ownership, particularly when something really bad happens. And, there, and there's real consequences to stake. Someone's gonna get fired. Someone's pay is gonna get docked. There's gonna be some serious uh, consequences for, for something that happened. And the only thing that's preventing a leader from taking ownership in that situation is ego. Ego is the greatest destructive force that we see in any team or any organization out there. And when we saw SEAL leaders get fired, and by the way, every every SEAL task unit, you know, a, a two platoons generally make up a SEAL task unit or a SEAL troop going through training. And just about every time there's a workup cycle, there's there's probably at least there's probably at least one or two leaders that end up getting fired uh, from from the three or four SEAL task units that, that make up that that team as they're going through training uh, before they deploy. And the reason they get fired is almost never because they're not. They're not talented, you know, they're not physically fit or they're not tactically sound or they're not capable in some way. It's almost always because 
they wouldn't take ownership. They wanted to point fingers. They wanted to cast blame. And so those problems continued. They got worse. And the performance of the team continued to spiral downhill until they get fired. So, you know, if you're in charge of a team, everything that that team does is your responsibility. And, and, and you can't do everything. I mean, we, we, we use the concept of decentralized command as one of our four laws of combat. Uh, so, so you have to empower the team. You have to empower leaders to actually step up and lead. Extreme ownership doesn't mean you have to do everything because you can't do everything. But, but you are responsible for every single thing that happens. And I mean, you, I mentioned I got young kids at home. You can use that as an example. I, I get frustrated. We're trying to get the, out the door and go to school. My kids are seven, five, and two in age. Hmm. And, you know, I can get frustrated. They didn't have their gear together. They didn't have their <laughs> shoes on in time. They didn't get in the car. You know, I had to get out, put their seatbelt on. You know, it's, this is, and it's really easy to get frustrated. And yet, think about it. I, I got, I, these are young kids. Everything these kids do, if they don't have their gear together, Whose fault is that? It's my fault. If they didn't get in the car early enough, it's my fault. They didn't have their shoes uh, on. It's my fault. And it's the same thing for every single leader out there. You know, if your team, even if you're not present when your team's doing something, if, if you're going to blame it all on that team, then even if you fire that person, you hire somebody else, there that problem is still going to exist. If if whereas if you realize that you know what. I didn't train this team properly. I didn't educate them about why we need to perform at a certain level uh, and what's at stake if we don't uh, don't get this done or if we don't get there on time, if we don't deliver this, this product or service. If, if you're not doing those things, these problems are going to continue uh, to, to repeat. They're going to get worse and worse and your team's never going to get better. You're never going to be able to solve that problem. So, you know, we say the power of extreme ownership is, is not that you just raise your hand when something goes goes wrong because if you realize that, that everything that your team does actually is your fault and, and, and you accept that, then extreme ownership actually becomes preemptive. And what I mean by that is you're going to make sure problems don't happen because if, if Jim, let's say you're on my team, I'm your boss. And if you are, I'm, 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 I'm concerned that maybe you're, you're, you're not as experienced as you need to be, or I don't have a tremendous trust and confidence that you're going to be able to perform at the level I need you to on, on a very key task that's strategically important to our organization, our mission, then I'm going to have to be a little closer to you. I, if, if I take extreme ownership and I can't just blame you, I'm going to be looking over your shoulder. I'm going to be a little closer to you. I'm going to check in with you. I'm going to make sure that you get uh, what you need to done. You have the support you need uh, and that we get that done. And so we actually prevent problems from happening and, and extreme ownership actually becomes preemptive. All right. So I get this. I hear exactly everything you're saying, Leif. Try and play along with this and maybe you won't, but you mentioned it a couple of times you've got three kids and they're young kids and that if they're not squared away and their gear is not ready, that's not on them. That's on you as the leader. So I've got two kids, one's in college, one's a high school junior. The high school junior, man, like he, we have the same conversations all the time. I'm like, turn your lights off, turn the lights off, turn the lights off. Can you get your, your gear ready? You got a game today on and on and on and on. I tell this kid the same thing and it, it's nothing I haven't said to him. I'd say it again. I'll say it again when I go home tonight. I know I will because I'm going to have the same issue yet again. If I'm saying this thing over and over and over again, and it keeps happening over and over and over again, is that a matter of extreme ownership on my part or extreme knuckleheadedness on his part and extreme laziness on his part? I already know the answer, but I'm just kind of venting out, man. Like, how many times do we have to tell these kids these things? Yeah, listen, I, I – uh... Unfortunately, extreme ownership doesn't make the frustrations any less real. Jim. Right. That's the that's the difficulty. And I can't when my kids are teenagers, I have two boys and a girl and uh, I've got my hands full. By the time they're teenagers, it's it's going to be mayhem. It's crazy. It's already crazy. So and, and I, I have a newfound respect and appreciation uh, for all that my parents did. And that's the question I'd ask if, you know, when when you were that age, 
did you listen to your parents? You know, did you do what they told you to do? And, and, and that's typically what I say when, when, when a, a, someone is asking me about, uh, about how they implement this. Uh, I had a leader the other day that asked me that, that, that same thing. My 12 year old just won't listen to me. And, you know, he's just not doing what I, I need him to do. And, and I said, well, did you listen to your dad when you were 12? And, and he's, he, he didn't want to say, he didn't want to say no. And of course I was like, look, you're either lying to yourself or you're just the, the most amazing kid in the universe. Cause I know I certainly didn't when I was 12. But one, one thing from a position of extreme ownership is, you know, we, we say uh, you, you, you have to, our, our, our third law of combat is prioritize and execute. And this is how you handle, uh, you handle a situation under pressure in combat when there's bullets flying around, when there's explosions going off, you have to prioritize and execute. And so we have to teach our, our leaders to relax, look around, make a call. And that relax piece is really important in order to make good decisions. You, you have to calm yourself down. You can't get emotional about things. And I think it's really, really hard to detach from a situation because we love and care about our kids so much. We want them to be successful in life. We want them to do the things that not make the same mistakes that we did. It's, it's, it's really hard to detach emotionally from those situations. So I think what I would challenge you to do there, Jim, is, is actually detach emotionally from uh, from that situation and, and to look at it from a perspective of effective or ineffective in evaluation of your communication there. If you keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, and you're not getting any results, then you need to kind of start taking a different approach. And, and one thing that I've done on this is, you know, Jocko talks about letting your kids brush up against the guardrails of failure. And this is a very hard thing to do as a parent because you don't want your kids to fail. You don't want your kids to be, you know, to have to learn the hard way through the school of hard knocks, like the way, the way I learned and the way you probably learned. So uh, you, you want to prevent that, but yet, you know, I'm not going to let my toddler run into traffic. Uh, that's not what I mean. But, but what I, what I will do is, you know, if he, let's say he doesn't want to put his jacket on when it's cold outside and, uh, and he wants to go out and play in the backyard. Well, it's not going to kill him to go out and play there for a few minutes. I know he's probably going to be freezing, come back in and put his jacket on. Uh, if uh, so, I, instead of me just sitting there and arguing with him about why he needs to put his jacket on, I'm just going to let him go out in the backyard and get cold. And then he's going to come back. He's going to put his jacket on and, and, you know, failure is often the, the best, the best teacher. So I think that's one of those things that, that I think it's easy as a parent to lean, lean in of trying to like solve all, all, all your kids problems for them instead of okay, if this isn't going to kill him, if this is going to cause some major issue, then maybe we ought to let him, let him learn the hard way, you know, from that particular situation. The other thing that I think is, is, is powerful here is it applies to leadership, whether you're leading a, you know, you could be the CEO of a major corporation leading, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, or, or you could be leading yourself, uh, you know, within a, a small team, or you could be uh, you're applying this to your family. If you can give people the more that you can give people ownership of things the more they're going to respond and i have my oldest son is seven if i i know that he needs to work out he needs to train physically so that he can perform well in athletics so that he it'll it's a great stress reliever it's going to be better for him he's going to be more physically fit it's going to be you know something i'm trying to establish in him to have that discipline for life the more i go with the direct approach to hammer him and say son get out in the garage we're doing burpees get out here. You know what he does? He pushes back. He says, I'm not doing it, daddy. I'm not, I'm not doing it. Even if I get him out there and I'll say, do push, do your push-ups." If I come with that hard, direct approach at him, he'll just lay on his face. He won't do any push-ups. So if I, if I say, Hey, you feel like working out today? He'll be like, Oh, no, nah, I don't feel like working out. I, I won't even come off the top rope. And be like we're working out. Quit being weak. I, I'll actually say, oh, okay, fine. Well, why don't you come out in the garage? I'm going to, I'm going to do workout. 
And then he'll, he'll start to approach me and say, Hey, can I, Hey, can I, can I join on this? Or, and, and then if he starts to, to show some interest, usually before I even start, he'll show some interest and I'll let him come up with a workout. What workout do you want to do? And I'll make sure it makes sense. I'll make sure it's not too crazy. I'll make sure it's something that he can do. I'll let him pick the playlist. He loves to pick out rock music and, and put that stuff in there to, to jam out uh, while we're working out. And if he, he decides we're doing burpees and squats and push-ups and how many we're doing, he'll come up with these odd numbers. But if I give him ownership of that, he owns the playlist, he owns the workouts, he owns how many reps we're doing, he knows how many sets we're doing. He will do that thing and he will crush me in those workouts. I mean, he's jumping, you know, a foot and a half off the ground for each, each burpee. And so I think it's just the power of trying to give your kids ownership. And it's the same thing in leadership. The more that you can give people ownership, tell them, you know, lay out the goal, lay out the mission, give them ownership of, of getting there and how they want to get there. It's their plan. They're going to carry out that plan. Uh, and so I think the more that you can do that with that indirect approach, he's out in the garage working out. He's happy. He's, he's having fun working out. He loves doing it. And I'm not trying to, I'm not getting frustrated trying to beat him over their head saying, Hey, you need to work out. This is why it's important. I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you and I'm going to own this and I will take ownership. And Leif, you know, what's really interesting is my older boy would say to me, if I express, I'd express frustration about my younger son to my older son, because we went through it with him already. And incredibly enough, if he would say to me, you know what? Hey, pop, Maybe it's how you say it to him. And then I'd get even more angry and say, you know what? I'm not going to play games and I'm not going to think about how I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it again and he's going to get the message and it's exactly what you're saying. It doesn't work. It's not working. So I hear what you're saying and there's got to be a modification in the way you lead. I'm really, I mean, I could fire questions like this at you for hours. I won't do that. But this notion of working out and and I, as I mentioned, I consume your content. Jocko is a genius. He's a brilliant brilliant communicator and writer, Goggins. I know lots of Navy SEALs. I know a lot of people that I really admire and my let's another guy. And this notion of exercise, movement, it's just so, so important. If I'm curious, like you, you have a really hectic, busy lifestyle. Exactly at this point in your life, how much working out do you do? I mean, is it an hour a day? Is it two hours a day? And why is it so important to living a quality lifestyle, leading effectively, being the best person you can be? It's massively important. It's massively important. There's times when I have prioritized work over uh, physical training and you, that, that becomes habit. And, and pretty quickly, you know, it's been two or three weeks before you've got some hard workouts. Next thing you know, uh, it's, it's, it's causing all kinds of issues. And, and I realize I, I get, I get angrier. I get more frustrated. Hmm. I get stressed when I'm not actually training. I've, I'm more mentally focused uh, it, 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 when I'm actually working out hard. And, and really, you know, just to, to Jocko's philosophy of discipline equals freedom. I mean, if you want the freedom to perform at the highest level level possible, you have to work out and, and you have to have the discipline to actually train uh, and, and physical fitness is a big part. Of it. I, I think there's I, I found that, you know, for me personally, there's a there's a massive correlation between my level of confidence and, and, and how hard I'm actually training routinely. Uh, and, and I can tell you just as somebody who's been beat up over the years, 13 years in the Navy, nine years in the SEAL teams, uh, th you know, this is that's pretty hard on your body. Uh, I've, I've had some some severe injuries that have, have, have uh, kept me down for a while. And, and I kind of got in my head, oh, I can't I can't do this anymore. I can't train that that anymore. And, and it's 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 really disruptive. Uh, I, I've gotten back on a good path. Uh, you know, in recent years where if I'm not doing this stuff every day, if I don't get up early in the morning and get it done, 
very first thing in the morning when no one's gonna no one's gonna mess with you at 4 30 in the morning five o'clock in the morning and uh, I, I go to my local crossfit gym and and hit that at 5 30 in the morning uh and just that movement the weightlifting, the the uh the stretching and uh mobility that's that's a part of that is is just it, it changes everything and so i try to get in at least uh one workout a day i'll train jujitsu or go for a run on top of that uh if i can when i have time for that when i'm traveling we travel a ton with echelon front that can become very challenging but you don't actually need a lot of time and effort you don't need a lot of equipment all you need to do is just have the discipline to carve it out in the schedule to get it done uh b- before your day begins so that you don't get interrupted hey i i'm so glad i asked you that question and what it does to you and how destructive it can be if you're not consistent in your physical training really quickly what about nutrition do you ever find yourself getting off the path start eating crap and does that also have a destructive kind of impact on you mentally emotionally physically and all that the same way it does if you don't train consistently hundred percent. And that's something that I've struggled with as, as I get older, I'm 45 now. And I used to be able to pack a few pounds on here and there. I mean, I could, I could burn those things off. It doesn't work that way anymore. Oh, I know. Uh, so <laughs> I, I hear it doesn't get any easier, but, but there, there is uh this is something that, that I, I think, it, I, I think, you know, look, if, if you want to, if you want to perform at your best, you, you've got to have the discipline actually to, to eat clean, uh, and, and to stay well hydrated, and and those those things are super important to do, um, and and it, it I, I just I, I really feel that like when I was when I was a young man of the SEAL teams, I could go out I could I could I could go out in the town have a bunch of drinks and and uh, you know party hard and show up early in the morning with very little sleep uh, and and be able to perform well uh, and, and still perform fairly well. Uh, I cannot do that at all. Uh, as I get older, I realize like I don't want to do that. It's not something that's fun. It's not something that's healthy. It's not something that's sustainable over the long term. So, you know, I, I think it, it's habits. And, and I think, you know, for me, it's easy when, you know, a lot of, I, I live in Texas now and, and uh, it, it's easy, you know, you go to a restaurant, a lot of the kids meals are not healthy. And when you, your kids, you order unhealthy stuff for your kids, you get in a habit of like, oh, I, if I haven't eaten today or I'm, I'm going to crush some of that, that food. And next thing you know, you're in a habit of, of eating poorly. And that's something that I have to fight against all the time. So, you know, my goal is to try to help my kids establish some healthy eating habits. Uh, and frankly, I got to do a lot better job of that. Yeah. I have to do a better job of being disciplined about that for my kids uh, and, and about that for myself and set a good example. Uh, because when I, when I stray from that, it's, it is, uh, it is hard to get back on the path and it's, it is not easy to get, uh, to get that back under control. Man, here, here, I'm trying to stay out of the pantry too. It is so true. Like leave really quickly. Do you, I mean, do you still drink in moderation? How do you approach alcohol? Like I, I'm with you, for instance, it's, it used to be that when we were younger, we bounced back from everything and everything was worth it. And as you get older, you find out almost nothing is worth it but i still like that cocktail on a friday or a saturday how do you approach alcohol you know there's uh jocko's is doesn't drink anymore uh i knew jocko before he was a teetotaler a teetotaler <laughs> that's funny but uh, right he was he was um you know the, the uh, look there's a lot of people that have decided that that hey that's not for them that's not a good use of their time or money um I, look i enjoy drink from time to time i think i think everything in moderation is uh is perfectly fine uh, my, my wife, I think would probably, uh, it, it probably wouldn't go over well if, if I didn't have a margarita with her on a, a Friday night every once in a while. So, uh, that's, uh, I, I think, I think as long as you're, you know, if, if you are keeping to a discipline schedule and for me, 
if if I if I uh, uh, if I know that I've got a tough workout coming, if I know that I'm going in to do the the hero workout of the day, you know, at my CrossFit gym at eight o'clock in the morning on Saturday, uh, when we we usually get together, and I usually bring my kids in, and sometimes they participate in that as well. Uh, I, I'm not going to go out and tear it up on Friday night because you know how much that's going to suck when you get in, you know, get into a really tough 45 minute or hour long uh, workout that's going to that's be extremely physically difficult on you. So I think if you're training regularly, I train jujitsu as well. So, you know, and, and I, that's hard to do, particularly when I travel a lot. Uh, so I, I've, I've, I've got to fight constantly to get that back, uh, you know, on the schedule and, and make time for that stuff. But you're going to have a hard role in the mats with people that are younger and stronger and more skilled than you. It's going to go really badly if you, you know, you're not going to want to have more than one or two drinks, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in, a, in an evening, you know, on a weekend or something before you go back and do those things. So I think for me, just prioritizing physical training and making that a really a part of, of, uh, of an everyday thing that you're doing. Uh, that, that to me helps me keep all the, the rest of that stuff in moderation. All right. One last thought. I appreciate that. Especially I, I would imagine how difficult it is to maintain that discipline and regiment when you travel as much as you do because, well, because it's travel. I understand that. And hey, really quickly, how do you think the average person, I mean, nobody is ever going to achieve anything without a level of mental toughness. So how does the average person or even a high level achiever improve mental toughness. I've always been fascinated by that concept. How do we get mentally tougher? I think mental toughness is, is like anything. I mean, if, if you've seen Jocko's video on this, he, uh, he created a, a, a video on this about just be tougher. And uh, which is something we kind of laughed about uh, and joked about, but, but, but the point he's making there is that you actually have to decide that you want to improve. Um, I, I think mental toughness, just like anything is a skill. And uh, leadership is a skill. You know, these, these are skills, just like playing basketball or football or, you know, soccer or anything else. And, and I think that, you know, you, you, you might have some innate qualities uh, that you're born with. As I said, you know, that strong will piece that's kind of in the DNA I see in my kids. There may be, there's, there's some innate qualities that we, you, you might have that give you uh, maybe a leg up on, on your peers, but you still have to train and prepare yourself. And, and I, I think that there, there's a massive amount of training that goes into um, to, to leadership skills and development. It's certainly to, to mental toughness. If you want to, you know, if, if you want to get tougher uh, mentally, then you need to do things that are challenge you and, and that push you harder. And, and you don't just throw yourself right in the deep end. You know, let, let's say like you're training breath holds. If, if you know, before you in the SEAL teams, you got to be able to hold your breath for a long time. Breath holds is one of those things that you can, you can really improve massively on. I'm not, you know, I, I haven't been training breath holds in a while. So if I, if I tried to do a three minute breath hold, that would kick my ass right now. But, but if you, uh, over time, if, if you go in and you start with a 45 second breath hold and you, and you move that to a minute, then you move that to, you know, a minute, 20 seconds, and you slowly start incrementally ramping that thing up, uh, that you, you can get there pretty quick. And a lot of that is simply just the mental toughness to recognize that like, Hey, when my body's telling me I need to breathe. I'm actually, I, I'm actually just fine. And I can hold out for, you know, another 10 or, or 20 or 30 or 45 seconds. So those things that uh, I think that's, you have to just train there. You know, we, we say that I, I didn't, I didn't invent this term. It's something that's been around for a long time, but there's no growth in the comfort zone. Any kind of a good training program, whether it's leadership development, whether it's training for, you know, tactical training programs for the SEAL teams, or whether it's a, you know, a, a athletic training program is going to have to push people out beyond their comfort zone into an area, into, into uh, areas that, uh, that have, they have to really push themselves mentally and physically. So if you're doing that and, and you're, you're, you're pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone, that's how you're going to grow. There's, there's no growth otherwise. 
So if you want to get mentally tougher, you have to make, you have to decide, make a decision to get mentally tougher. And then I think you have to do things that challenge you uh, so, so that you're, you're, you're growing uh, and improving in that mental toughness aspect. Leif, I promise you one last thought, one last question, because I just want to follow up on something you said. Like when you mentioned Jocko and the fact that you guys, there's that video and you guys kind of chuckle at that when Jocko says like, you want to be tougher, be tougher. Like discipline equals freedom. I love Extreme Ownership. It's an amazing book. I really do. Discipline Equals Freedom, I think. It, it might be my favorite book ever. It's an amazing book. I've read it so many times. But there's this passage where he says things like that, like, you want to quit eating sugar? Quit eating sugar. You want to get on a workout program? Get on a workout program. You want to be tougher? Get tougher. He says it even works like in your personal life. You want to get over that person who broke up with you? Get over that person who broke up with you. I mean, are these things... Is it really just a matter of mindset? Can you really just choose and decide to do all these things? Does it work like that? Yeah, look, I think it does. I think when you realize that it's actually a decision, you know, one of the biggest excuses that any of us give ourselves is that it's harder for me than it is for other people. Right. Uh, I, I think that's the biggest excuse that, that we, we give ourselves. I know, I know it's, that's certainly been the case with me. You know, and just one illustration of this, uh, I'll give you, Jim. I, I spent, you know, nine years in the SEAL teams, no knee problems whatsoever. I was on an elk hunt up in the mountains of New Mexico, uh, like three months after I left uh, active duty in the SEAL teams, and I blew out my knee. And so I had to have total, you know, ACL reconstruction. And I, I was, you know, for a guy who was, you know, very physically fit in the SEAL teams and, and was training at a very high level, you know, I'm stuck on the couch and I'm sitting there, you know, just uh, scrolling through the television channels and feeling sorry for myself. And I was living in New York City at the time, and 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 it was it was very frustrating to me. Um, and, and, and frankly, I just kind of got in a dark place. It was a dark place because just as I mentioned before, I, I was, I was easily stressed because I wasn't training. I wasn't able to, to train the way I wanted to. And I had a really good friend of mine who lost both legs above the knee in Afghanistan. He was coming into New York city to run the New York city marathon. He was going to hand cycle half of it and then run the rest on his prosthetic legs. He's an extraordinary athlete. And I was supposed to run it with him and I couldn't do it now because, you know, I tore my ACL. And so I'm, I'm just a few weeks out of surgery at this point and I, I was on crutches still. And I went down to meet him in a New York City bar. And so he and a bunch of the other wounded warriors, you know, these Marines and soldiers and, and sailors and airmen that had come in with missing limbs and they were severely wounded coming up here to be, you know, either hand cycle or run on their prosthetics in the New York City Marathon. And I walk into the bar to meet, meet my friend and I'm on crutches and I walk up there and they just, you know, here I have been feeling sorry for myself. I walk up, these wounded warriors, they look at me like, what happened to you? It's like it tore my ACL. They all start laughing at me and just like, cut that thing off. Wow. And, and I just, wow. I just started shaking my head. I thought, wow, this is, here I am. I've been feeling sorry for myself about how, you know, Hey, here I tore my ACL. My, my leg's going to heal, you know, and, and I'll be fine and I'll have full use of my leg. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, here are these young these young uh, service members are, they're missing limbs. Those are never going to, they're, they're going to have that injury for life. And, and so it's just a matter of perspective. And, and I think that's, you know, when, when you don't give yourself the excuse that it's harder for you than it is for other people, there's other people that have it way harder than you. Uh, and yet they're, they're out there making things happen, figuring things out. And so, you know, if there's one thing I can say about Jocko, when he's making those kind of decisions to not eat sugar, to pass up the sugar coated lies, as he calls it, you know, donuts <laughs> or pastries or whatever. It's, it's, it, it, what, if there's one thing that, that Jocko, you know, Jocko has a lot of gifts as a leader, but I'd say the biggest thing that I've always been impressed with Jocko about is his strategic vision has always been extraordinary. 
It's always been extraordinary. I'm in the battle of Ramadi, recognizing that we needed to adjust our tactics, not just to go out and capture bad guys at nighttime, but to support the, the army and Marines that take the city back in this counterinsurgency strategy, that we needed to adjust that, that that was what was going to, uh, the only thing that was going to enable us to be successful. And, and he, he's always thinking strategically in, in everything that he does, building relationships with people. Uh, same thing for those little tactical decisions. So that's where I think people uh, fall short is you're thinking, oh, if I just eat this donut or I just crush this piece of pizza or I, I just skip this one workout, you know, what's the big deal? If, if you're thinking tactically, then, then, uh, th then you're going to set yourself up for failure. But if you're thinking strategically about what that's going to do to you, the habit that that's actually developing, how that's actually going to translate long-term, it's probably not just this one time because, you know, the, the, when, when you cave on one thing, it becomes easier and easier. That becomes habit. Whereas when you hold the line and, and you remain disciplined, that becomes habit. And that becomes easier and easier to stay disciplined as a result. So I think when you're thinking strategically in everything you do and you realize that it's, it's not harder for others, uh, uh, then it's not harder for you than it is, than it is for other people, that other people have it way harder than you. Don't give yourself that excuse. I think that's what's going to set you up for success long term. My quick reaction is those young guys telling you to cut it off is incredible. Also, Jocko on the sugar-coated lies, Jocko on the donut is just one of my favorite things ever. He, uh, they, I can't even explain how awesome it is, just his simple take on a donut, which is tremendous. If I lied, I do have one last thought. You mentioned the Battle of Ramadi. Do you, do you miss that life? I mean, it, it seems so terrifying, combat. And, and thank you again so much for your service and everybody who does that, because we're not. We couldn't live the way we do if not for the sacrifices of so many people that you served with and others. Do you miss that life? Every day, Jim. Every single day. There is, uh, I, I think that it's, it's interesting. Mean, it's a fantastic question. Uh, and thank you for asking. Cause I think a lot of Americans need to hear this. Um, you know, we lost uh, the first seal killed in the Iraq war. Mark Lee was in my platoon was a, a, an incredible man, just seal teammate, friend, uh, machine gunner, and just, a, just an incredibly incredible individual. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the day that we lost Mark was also the same day that Ryan Job, another incredible seal teammate, friend, um, awesome machine gunner and just, just, a, just, just like Mark was just such an exceptional guy. He was shot in the face by an enemy sniper round and blinded as a result in that same, uh, that same day, uh, August 2nd, 2006. And, uh, and later we lost Ryan. We passed away from, from, uh, from a surgery to repair the, the wounds that he'd sustained in combat three years before. Uh, I do anything to trade place with those guys. You know, I, I would do anything to trade place with those guys. It's something it's a burden that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. It never goes away. And I think a lot of Americans think, wow, you know, you saw a lot of combat over there. That must be so hard for you. Those days when we lost guys, those, those are days I would trade. I would, I would, I would do anything to trade those days and go back there and do something different. But the other days, I think we were deployed for, I believe it was 208 days in that deployment to Ramadi in 2006. You know, just about every single one of those days were involved in violent combat missions I, I, I wouldn't trade the rest of those days for anything. They were the best days of my life. I mean, they were, we, we knew that we were fighting an evil enemy. I mean, the insurgency there in Ramai, this was the precursor to ISIS. They were an evil an enemy as the U.S. has ever faced in our long history. And, and I think, you know, we knew that we were making a difference on the battlefield, that we were uh, making sure that more soldiers and Marines came home to their families. We were protecting innocent Iraqi people. Uh, I, I would do, I, I would never trade those days. And it was awesome. They will always be some of the best days of my life. 
And, uh, and so I appreciate you saying that. Thank you for thanking me for my service. But, I, you know, for me, it was an honor to serve. I would do it all again in a heartbeat. Mm. So they both books, and I appreciate your thoughts on that so much. Both books that you've written on leadership, extreme ownership, and the dichotomy of leadership, they're both brilliant. Can you tell me where these books are available if people want to get them? And also, we talked about Echelon Front. If people want more information about the company and the work you're doing and the way you're helping folks out in terms of leadership, where do they go to get that? They can go to echelonfront.com. We, uh, we, we run leadership training programs to talk about where uh, the lessons that we learn on the battlefield and how those lessons apply uh, directly to any team in any situation. You can, you can buy Extreme Ownership or uh, Dichotomy Leadership or any of Jocko's books, any, anywhere books are sold, really Amazon or anywhere else. Um, and uh, I appreciate so much your, your support uh, and encouragement. In those those efforts, Jim. I mean, as I said, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. Uh, watch your show for for years. From the time I was a I was a a kid playing high school football, and uh, and so I, I think that uh, just just means a ton that uh, that these books have been impactful to you, and that you're able to take these leadership principles. Oh, and, hey, listen, Leif, I, I mean, the world and share them with others. No, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I mean that. I mean that sincerely. Like I want to end this the way I started this by saying it's an absolute honor and a privilege to meet you. And I do devour that content. And as somebody who's talked sports my whole life, like I've reached a point in my life where, as you know, I'm older than you, but I don't want to give in. I don't want to give up. I want to figure out a way to be better and stronger and tougher and make sure the best is in front of me. And one of the ways I do that is by devouring the content that you and Jocko and the entire company produce. So Leif, thank you. Thank you for the time, for being as engaged. And I I knew you would be because you always are, but I really don't keep guests this long. It's just hard to let you go, man. It is so good to meet you, and I really appreciate this conversation so very much. Enjoyed every minute of it, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. Great talking to you. I can't lie. That was one of my favorite conversations to date. Personal aside, Leif is a dude that I just want to have a few pops with and chop it up with. A tremendous dude to be around and to have in your corner. Professionally, this is a dude who is laser-focused, but authentic, real, and has tremendous info to impart to all of us. My biggest takeaway from this conversation, of course, was this notion of extreme ownership. Now, if I'm being real, I'm not sure that I possess even partial ownership much of the time, much less extreme ownership. In fact, I do exactly the opposite of what Leif and Jocko advocate for in extreme ownership, far more than I'd like to admit. I'd like to say that I take full responsibility for all my actions and own everything that happens on my own team at the office and in my own life, but if I'm being honest, that's not really true. In fact, probably not even close to true. However, after reading their book and having that conversation, that's going to change. Now, that doesn't mean that I need to do everything myself, but it does mean that I'm ultimately responsible for everything that happens. That's what it means to lead from the front. And no, it doesn't matter if you weren't there when something bad happened or you weren't the one who took the action that led to the unfortunate incident. You're in command. You're responsible. By the way, we're all in command of our team's Our families, hell, our lives. We are the CEO. We are the commander. We are in charge of ourselves, our lives, and everything around it. Therefore, it is entirely our responsibility. The second you accept ownership of everything in your life, your life will immediately begin to improve. Something else that Leif spoke of that really resonated with me is something that he and Jocko both hit on consistently, quote, default aggressive. Default aggressive. Now, that doesn't mean you're looking to get in everybody's grill or get into fights all day long with everybody, but what it does mean is you're going to get after it. 
every day, all day, and attack your goals and your process. I love that. Default aggressive, or as he put it, a bias for action. There's so much in the books, extreme ownership and dichotomy of leadership, that there's no way I could ever get to it all in a single conversation with Leif. So I would encourage you to go out and get both those books and to follow him on social media. I appreciate him immensely and the time he made for us today. And if you do as well, please let him know on social media and be sure to share this conversation and subscribe to this pod if you have not already. As always, thank you so much for making time for this conversation and for taking this journey along with me. Have an amazing week. Keep grinding, and I will see you next time right here on The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.